I totally understand that people want to help. I totally understand that people want to help dogs. And really, if you just care about dogs, this probably isn't the work for you because you need to care about the people too. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, presented by the Fur Bears. We had an amazing three new patrons sign up over the last week, so I want to thank Leslie, Lynn, and Julie for their contributions at patreon.com slash Defender Radio. You're making Defender Radio possible and helping us get closer to the 100 patron per month goal for 2018. And as promised last week, we'll be contributing to the Fashion Animals book crowdfunding effort by Joshua Katcher and sending the hardcover copy of the book we received to... Lynn C. of Ottawa. Congrats, Lynn. I'll be in touch this week about your prize. If you want to learn more about being a patron and how you can help grow the show and support the fur bears, check out patreon.com slash Radio. The International Fund for Animal Welfare, or IFA, has a campaign called the Northern Dogs Project. On the face of it, the program is straightforward. Assist remote First Nations communities in Quebec and Canada to live with dogs in a positive way and manage populations humanely. But it's a lot more than that, and it has less to do with dogs than you may think. Jan Hanna, manager of the Northern Dogs Project, joined Defender Radio to discuss the project, the history of working with Cree and Anishinaabe communities, and why it matters that as advocates, we focus on listening. Before we get to the interview, I want to acknowledge how sensitive a subject this is. Colonialism and intergenerational trauma are subjects I don't have a firm grasp on, as I've not studied or researched extensively in this area, nor had the opportunity to be immersed in this culture. I do understand that they impact the lives of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit, people and society significantly. The reason I wanted to do this episode is because it's a subject that we as animal advocates and compassionate individuals must try to learn more about. I also believe that IFA's method of working with communities through listening is a concept we can all learn from. I believe we can all have a positive impact on the people around us, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, or history, so long as we move forward with compassion and respect and accept responsibility for the errors we have made and those that we continue to make. And if this is a subject of interest to you, I recommend you visit the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada website or visit your local library to learn more about colonialism intergenerational trauma, and the cultures and history of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people of this land. I'll certainly be doing that myself. What's the history of this project? Um, You know, I understand it's not a, uh, the International Fund for Animal Welfare sat down and said, we're going to fix this problem. That's not where this one started. So could you share the story of how the project did start? So... It was actually when the IFA office in Ottawa opened and they were looking at where to get involved, right? And animal issues in Canada and had identified, heard that First Nations communities were dealing with what were often and still are often considered dog overpopulation issues. And so reached out to communities across Canada to ask if anybody wanted help. And 
And the Cree in James Bay said, yes, we do. Thank you. And that was how it started. <laughs> just, uh, I, I'm sure it was just that simple of a conversation. Um, it, I think it kind of was. Actually. Really? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because IFA was looking to, to, you know, they didn't want to work on companion animals necessarily in, in overlap with what the SBCAs were already doing and the good work that humane societies and all that stuff, mm-hmm. all that stuff was already happening. So it was about finding that place that still had issues that needed, needed help, right? Not overlapping and, and stepping on other people's toes. And how did it evolve into the, the full-fledged project or campaign that it is today? What, what were the steps that were taken and what was seen? Were you on the ground as it started? I was not on the ground when it started. I came two years in. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, when it started, it was it was meetings with the community right away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the James Bay area, there are nine communities. So what we did was we sat down with uh, one community in the beginning and decided on what their issues were and how they wanted to address those issues and what IFA could do to assist them in addressing those issues. So they said that they would work on certain things and we said that we would work on certain things. So for instance, they were trained in animal control. Mm -hmm. So they came down South and the people, they're not animal control officers up there. They're usually public safety officers. They came down and they had the full animal control training with the SPCA. We provided vet services. We went into the schools and talked to the kids and did presentations on that. We did public outreach and they were to hire public safety officers, keep them trained, build that capacity. And at that time too, we did no rehoming. In the beginning, we did no rehoming. The idea was, you know, together as partners, we're gonna build this fully functioning program. And as a result, we wanna keep the dogs in the community. We don't wanna be taking the dogs out of the community. Mm-hmm. Could you paint a picture of what what the situation was in the communities. And I think this, this is something that I, it's difficult to sometimes sort of understand that some of these communities, even even, uh, ones that aren't that remote, it's a, it can be a vastly different culture and world from what we're used to. So what was the life like there in regards to pet ownership and domestic animals? Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because when I talk to people who were, you know, a geologist, for instance, I talked to a geologist who's lived in the community for almost, well, she was there 10 years before I was there. Mm-hmm. And she talks about just the sheer number of dogs that were roaming around. So in most of the communities, so just let me be specific to James Bay, they lived on the land. And so they were coming into the communities, of course, to to trade fur and to gather stuff. That it, that had been their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Then when Hydro-Quebec came in and dammed the river, the government resettled everybody permanently into these communities. Okay. So that's how they got there. That's why there's a highway there. That's why there's a highway on the Quebec side. Like on the Ontario side, all the Cree communities are flying only. But on the Quebec side, Hydro-Quebec built that highway. They built all the roads. That was part of the agreement. So you have a different kind of connectivity, right? People have cars. They can get on the highway. They can come down. 
But going back to what you were saying, so when people lived on the land, they had their dogs. Their dogs were usually working dogs. And they had, you know, maybe you have five dogs collectively as a family unit or there's, you know, families come together and there's 12 dogs. All of a sudden, you pull people off the land, you put them in a community, everybody comes in and everybody comes in with their dog. Mm -hmm. And you also had that changing lifestyle where people had already, you know, they weren't living a fully subsistence existence anyway. But you have people who come into communities, and these communities are not rural communities like you see, um, let's say, around London with Oneida. They are – you can walk everywhere. I can walk everywhere. The houses are right next to each other. It's it's urban. It's not rural. They're small, so the communities are like 700 people to 6,000 people. But I can walk everywhere just to give you that idea. They're not rural. And so so it's very much like a village concept of everything. It's a village. Yeah, everything is close together and accessible. (laughs) Yeah. So then you have have dogs that have come in, and you have dogs that aren't necessarily working dogs anymore, but people still by habit have dogs, and the dogs are free-roaming. So that doesn't mean they're not owned. It just means that they're roaming around. They're doing their thing. They know where they live. They go home, but they're free roaming. And so free roaming dogs are making dog decisions, right? They're mating. They're packing up on females. The males are fighting. Everybody's looking for food because they're not necessarily fed enough. So you have that kind of, it's a very, you know, dogs are out on the street. When you go into the communities, you see dogs out on the street. And, And when I spoke to, um, a gentleman who sat at the table in his communities in the seventies when they decided to shoot dogs. And he said, we had absolutely no other option. That's what they felt. They had no other option. He said, you know, people weren't taking care of their dogs. They were hungry. They were fighting. They were at a health and safety hazard. And that's why we're in the communities, right? We were not invited in for animal health and welfare issues. We were invited in for public safety. Mm -hmm. It's interesting When I think about the people I know who live in a much more rural environment, I live in central Hamilton. um, So the idea of an off-leash dog gives me heart palpitations. Yeah, Um, totally. People I know who live in a rural area, though, they open the door and the dog goes. Mm -hmm. And the dog comes back for dinner time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this is in Ontario, in Alberta, um, all over the place. Yeah. When we have a conversation about this, about these communities up in James Bay, is it that same mentality of the dog lives outside and comes inside for dinner and maybe, you know, sleeps at the foot of the bed, uh, but sort of has the right to do this. So what what is the life of a dog in this community? And how do we sort of look at it in such a way that we're not judging it? Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's really difficult for a lot of people. And I'll Mm -hmm. tell you, even for my volunteers who I, you know, I try to really prepare them. The bottom line is people are not prepared to see free roaming dogs and they make judgments about people's value for an animal that isn't on the end of a leash. And I keep telling people, don't do that because you're exactly right. Like that's how dogs still live on farms, right? Yeah. Usually where they, they have more of a job. And I think that's the thing in these communities and, and I don't have the answer for it is so dogs used to be working dogs, and at some point, 
they become pets for people. But I would say a lot of First Nations dogs, they're sort of caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. So they're not working dogs anymore, but they're not yet pets. So they're not going inside. They're not sleeping on somebody's bed. They're not. So, and, and so that gets to then again, why do people have dogs? That's usually where people get very judgy. And, you know, we just did research and we did um, attitudinal interviews with people. And, you know, there's a whole range of attitudes towards dogs up there and love does come up and protection does come up and we've always had dogs also comes up so you know I can't nail why why people have dogs for sure but the bottom line is they want them and they have them yeah and I think it's it's important to point out and this is you know in talking with your colleague and yourself prior to our interview is recognizing um, that the way I view my dogs yeah. Again, as a, you know, a young white male living in a Canadian city is yeah. relatively new in the world still. Totally. It is. Totally uh, it is. This, this is, this is like, I'm what, two generations in on the concept totally. of the, the dogs have more space than I do in my home. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you're totally right. And I say that to people too. Like my dad used to open the door. His dog wasn't neutered. His dog went outside. And it did whatever it did all day long. Mm-hmm. And then if it didn't come back and he got a call from the pound, they picked it up. Maybe they picked it up a second time, third time they didn't pick it up. Yeah. And they didn't change how they owned it either. So that, so that buddy wasn't picked up. They were just like, oh yeah. Nah. So you're totally right. And, and a lot of that too, I mean, that you look at our lifestyle, how much of our time used to be spent on just making a living. Yep. Right. And, and I mean like more of making a living. Now we have all sorts of this extra income. We have this extra time. We go to the gym, we go to movies, like we're, we food is entertainment now, you know, all that stuff. And that's a function of economy. And that's why we own the dogs the way we do, because we have the time and the money to do it. I mean, you look at the cost of, of taking your dog for annual vaccines at the vet, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a function of economy that you can do that. So, so people are owning their dogs like we used to own our dogs 40 years ago, and we really should not be judgy about it because we were there 40 years ago. And now, you know, now we can spend 85 bucks on a bag of dog food, and we have the time to walk our dog on a leash and go to class, and, and oh, my God, we can go to dog sports. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it is totally a function of, of our culture and our society and where it's moving. And, you know, you look in Beijing, too. I mean, people in Beijing and China – didn't used to have dogs. And now, of course, again, that's becoming a city. That's where people are, they have their nine to five job, they're lawyers, they're teachers, they're doctors, and now they have disposable income as well, and they're getting dogs. Yeah, and I, uh, we, we've skipped ahead into the cultural conversation. But let me tell you, and going back to your question that I kind of, again, skirted, <laughs> when, when I started and when I went in the communities, you know what, there were lots of dogs running around. Yeah. Now, what does lots of dogs mean? And I was called in because people kept saying there are too many dogs. And that's often how this issue is framed across Canada. Mm-hmm. But again, what's too many dogs? And when I dove down into it, it's not necessarily the number of dogs, it's the behavior of the dogs. And that's why free-roaming dogs end up being a problem. It's their behaviors. It's pooping on people's lawns. It's chasing cars. It's um, you have an intact female on your porch, and your kid has to, to get to school, has to come out of the door, walk past your female who's in heat, walk down the stairs where there are 10 intact dogs 
males waiting to mate with your female. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of reality we're talking. So those are those nuisance behavior. It's not necessarily that there are 600 dogs roaming around. It's the fact that the number of dogs that's roaming around, it could be 20 dogs or it could be 100 dogs. It's those behaviors that those dogs have that people don't feel safe or they don't like. That's the bottom line. And this, this nicely segues back into the what the day-to-day is like for yourself, for, for IFA as a whole, and for the communities who have received some of the training, who have worked with you on solutions. Because, uh, yeah. you know, again, here Hamilton, in London, in Toronto – we call animal control and two people come out with catch poles and crates and they grab the yeah. dogs and take them to the shelter and neuter them yeah. and try and rehome them. That's, that's yeah. what happens. So yeah. what is the day to day in a community like this now? Day to day when we're not there or day to day when we are there? Um, let's say both. Let's, what, so what, what does it look like? So interestingly enough, just as background to the, the dog job in the communities is not a, it's people don't want to do that job, mm-hmm. right? So you have high turnover in that job, which means capacity building and training becomes difficult because every six months you potentially have a new person. No, is it so they don't the want that's... the job because of like compassion fatigue or burnout, or is it simply a when... sort of look down upon job? Exactly. It's looked down upon. There's no social cred in that job. Mm -hmm. And when communities were killing dogs and the communities I'm in aren't killing dogs anymore, when they were killing dogs, that was a traumatic job. And people talked to me about it. They said, I had nightmares. I couldn't sleep. My wife told me to quit the job. I wasn't happy. I was drinking. So definitely that, that trauma, it, it affects people. Yeah. But now, I mean, the bottom line is, it's not a job unto itself. Again, it's folded into the public safety portfolio. So they have a bunch of stuff going on. Dogs are not their priority. They don't want to do it. It's just part of that portfolio and they can't get rid of it. But I'll tell you, in one of the communities I work in, there is an animal care and control person. She is from outside the community, but her and her husband have lived in the community for 12 years. And that community, she fully enforces the dog bylaws in that community all the dogs are tied and that's her job Mm -hmm. and that's that's a very different that's a very different feel and when you go into that community you do not see a roaming dog what else happens behind the scenes then Uh, i i see part of it is uh, i hear part of it is the training of individuals who can manage the 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 dogs um in a practical manner so from the public safety or animal control point of view i sort of getting that in place and there's there's training available for that what else goes on i mean it's it's not as simple as sort of having someone there to enforce a local no. law or or no. pick up stray dogs there's no. veterinary care there's there's training there's uh, appropriate food and diets all of these other aspects so how does ifall work with the community and how does the community work with IFA to sort of create this success? So we, it's about finding, I mean, really what this is about is behavior change, right? And Mm -hmm. I tell the public safety officers that all the time. Don't spend your job enforcing, spend your job educating because dogs are domestic animals. They are attached to people 
And so dogs will always be dogs. They're never going to change their behavior. What you need is people to change their behavior. And when people do what you need them to do, this part of your job becomes minuscule, right? So that's what I tell people. But a lot of, a lot of it is information sharing. So we do, I do take a vet team in, uh, in every spring. And so we've been doing that for 17 years. So every spring go in, take a vet clinic. And I have been lucky enough to have the same vet. And I think IFA's program is different in that my vets are not up front talking to people. I'm up front talking to people. Hmm. So it's myself and I have the same volunteers year after year after year so that we are creating relationships and connections with people and their dogs. And, and it's using that same language. It's not medical language. It's, it's, listening to what people need to hear and how they need to hear it and then providing that information. And it's basic, it's basic dog care. It's basic um, health care and it's in context, right? So it's not talking about dog food necessarily like, you know, how many cups of dogs would you feed your day? It's, are you feeding your dog country food? And if they're feeding it country food, what are you feeding? And that's totally fine. Moose is fine. Deer is fine. Goose is fine. It, for me, it's totally been finding out where each individual is on their dog ownership journey and then filling in as needed. Mm-hmm. So we do the vet clinic every spring. I go into the classes as well and do presentations, but just completed a First Nations education pack, and it was written by First Nations curriculum developers for First Nations learners. And that's a six-unit, and that is going across Canada. Nice. Yeah, it's actually really exciting. So that means that, and it's based on their stories. So it's elders and role models from across Canada who talk about dogs in different ways. And then the materials are all based on their interviews and flush out, you know, animal care and weather and how to live in community together. So it's actually, it's an amazing cup. And then um, I have a Facebook page for the communities where I'm constantly sharing either medical knowledge or, you know, it's been freaking freezing. So information about that. But then again, it's, you know, I don't want to beat anybody up about how they own their dog. I want to kindly show them a respectful way of maybe doing something differently. So that's, that's also the Facebook page, trying to find those ways of providing information in a way that resonates with people and they don't feel beaten up. And I'm not some white chick telling them what to do. Well, and that's what I want to ask about. And this is a a very difficult subject. It is one I have no training on. I have no education on. um, But I recognize is an issue. And that is how colonization affects all of this. As a just completely overall. And that is, I actually have the note of, um, you know, what are the issues of Canadian white folks going into these communities to fix Mm. issues? Um, Mm -hmm. And... I, I I don't know how to structure this question. I don't know how to yeah, do this. I, I, I want to do it with as much respect as possible. And, and that's it's it's, a tough one. Yeah, and it's understanding that we as a society uh, historically have created a lot of issues. Totally. Um, so from that point of view, with that in mind, how do you and your team and your volunteers and your veterinarians work with the communities in such a way that it is empowering them as opposed to trying to fix them? Totally. Uh, number one, I would say the philosophy 
is my philosophy has never been that I'm going to fix anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I recognize we don't live there. It's not my culture. And so I never could fix it anyway. So that was the idea behind sitting down together and being true partners in this to figure out what value can IFA add? What can we enhance that's already going on in the community? And what other things can we add to what's going on in the community that will help you to solve the unique challenges that you face in your community? And to me, it's really as simple as that. And I don't try to be First Nations. I don't, you know, the more I work in these communities, it's coming on 20 years, the less I know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty common for for anybody who works in something a long, long time. Every person is individual and every person is living that legacy of colonialism differently. And the communities are made up of, of kids that are being born today like a whole different generation. So I'm speaking to elders who went to residential school and I'm speaking to elders who didn't go to residential schools and I'm speaking to their kids whose parents weren't there. So everybody's living it differently, but everybody's just trying to carry on with their life. So what I try and do, non-judgmental, I really try and recognize my biases when, when I'm feeling them And I really just try to listen, Mm -hmm. really to listen and impart information in a way that's meaningful to the people who I'm talking to, each individual person. And like one of the things I'm really sensitive about is, you know, residential schools, you know, we, we tried to educate them. So I don't even like to use the word education. Like I really don't. That's why I use the term outreach and stuff like that, because we already did that and that didn't work. Sure didn't work for them, right? So it's the same as taking dogs. I do take dogs. I will rehome dogs. But I certainly don't agree with going in, taking a shit ton of dogs out, because we did that. We did that with their kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I just, you know, those historical markers to me, I have some that just sort of, they're just beacons that flash for me, but everything else is just being respectful and spending a lot of time listening because our culture, my culture talks a lot and my culture believes that we know everything. So when I go in the communities, I just sort of turn that on its head. I do as much listening as I possibly can. And I do as little talking as I can, and I try and make what I say meaningful and contextual. I never would have made the connection between the schools and taking children away and taking the dogs mm-hmm. out. Um, mm-hmm. That just hit me like a frying pan over the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what it's like for you sometimes when when you sort of you you have a conversation with someone in the community or you learn something new, and it just is astonishing almost that this is real no you know what's astonishing to me is that people and i just did a talk about this in the spring working in first nations communities now like when we started doing it nobody was doing it now there's lots of people doing it and it makes me really nervous and uncomfortable 
because I think to work in the communities, you have to be the right person. You have to have the right mindset. And I think there are a lot of people going in who don't have it, who have that, we'll come in, we'll fix your problem. We know everything. Don't you worry. We'll take care of it. You know nothing. And that to me is so damaging because like you say, our relationship with First Nations is tenuous anyway, mm-hmm. and rightly so, right? Yep. And then, so when people go in, they're basically just perpetuating colonialism by going in and saying, hey, you know, don't worry, you guys don't get it. We get it. We'll fix it. And You don't know how to own your dogs and we'll show you how and all that. And it's like, mm, no. And I say that to every single community when I go, you have the opportunity to own your dogs in whatever way you want. That can look extremely different from what it is now. I don't even know what possibilities you have, but don't look to down south to how you own your own. You know, you don't need to own your dogs like people do down south. How do you have this conversation with people that want to help? Um, So is it sort of the way we're having the conversation where I acknowledge how little I know and you start (laughs) just sort of filling in (laughs) blanks? Or do you have to kind of hit people over the head with it and say, if you're going to be involved, if you're going to come, whether you are a veterinarian or a volunteer or someone on your team, this is what you need to understand. You know what? I don't think I've got that. I Number one, I have the same team come back year after year after year. Mm-hmm. So I'm so lucky. Like, I'm so lucky. I do have a document that tells people I do sit down with people. I explain it. I show video. I talk about balancing your biases. I talk about um, um, colonialism and historical trauma, just so that people understand that. And I tell them, you're not going to see it on every person. You wouldn't recognize it anyway. I wouldn't recognize it anyway. The idea is that you need to know that the potential exists for people to be living their trauma in a certain, you know, whatever way they need. So you are respectful, you are kind, you are compassionate, you are empathetic. Simple as that. The reverse side of that is, to me, what you have learned um, going into the communities and working on this project yourself. So there's a lot about how a nonprofit can work with a community. Uh, there's yeah, a lot about right. how we have to look to uh, having a positive change on behavior if we want to see positive change for the animals. But, yeah. And I think that's true outside of First Nations communities as well. Um totally. But for yourself, going into these communities for all of these years, what have you taken away from it personally? Um, uh, very simply, it's not a dog problem. It's a people problem. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's clearly like bing, bang, bong. It is not a dog problem. It's a people problem. And that... Um, that you can't force change either. That time, to me, is the biggest influencer of change. And that goes back to exactly what we talked about at the beginning. The change that's happening in First Nations communities around how they own their dogs has a lot to do with outside influences, cell phones, Google, um, and their economies, right? And Again, when they have disposable income, they will start to spend it differently. And that's when you're going to see a shift in how dogs 
are taken care of. But I will tell you also, too, what I have learned, and this is sort of what I was saying in my email, that I don't see stuff anymore, like I'm not horrified about dogs. The life that these dogs have, though it may be shorter, is often shorter. They are living a life that I think is truly, in some respects, more gratifying for a dog. Mm -hmm. I think down here we've lost, we've lost the dog in the whole thing. Like, are we actually meeting the needs of our dogs? Because they're not little people. They actually are dogs and they have needs. And, you know, now your dog can't growl at another dog. It has to love every other dog. It has to love children. It has to, you know what I mean? Like all that stuff. And they're just, they're dogs. And up there, they get to be dogs. And that's why they are so great because they get to be dogs. They get to interact with other dogs. They get to interact with kids, cars, water. They get to make choices. And, um, and I really think that we in the South could definitely learn from that. And I think we could get off our high horse too. And I always say that, you know, the dogs, the, if you took it, you know, you took half of how the dogs live up North and half of how they live down South, you'd probably have the perfect life, but you know, eight hours in a crate ain't a perfect life. Hmm. Agency for our pets is a very interesting topic that I have, yeah. I have seen mentioned, and it's actually through a, a mutual colleague, Adriana uh, Pisano Beaumont. Uh, yeah, who I know we just did research together. Yeah, 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 and she's sending me a copy of it. I hope. Um, yeah. She said she's going to, so if she's listening, send it. Okay. <laughs> um, but it is. It's a very interesting concept that I know nothing about, uh, though. Yeah. It is. I mean, and that's you know, if your dog doesn't want to go for a walk. Uh, as yeah. a just brief example, do you force them to go for a walk because you want yeah. them to go for a walk or yeah. do you find some other way for them to get exercise and stimulation? And, yeah. you know, one of my dogs, uh, JJ, um, our other dogs are, they're athletic. They love to play yeah. dog sports. They love to perform. They love doing that stuff. Yeah. Her favorite thing in the world is sitting next to me and guarding me from goblins and aliens. Right. Um, awesome. And that's what she does. <laughs> I don't try and like trying to get her to like play fetch. She plays it for two minutes. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so and imagine, imagine the goblins and aliens, right? Like you might not even be here. I, I try and tell people that, uh, and every day there's airplanes that pass over and don't yes. bomb the house because of her. So we totally. all should oh, be thankful. I have, I have no doubt. And I will say actually, now that you said agency, because that is exactly that is a foundation principle for working First Nations too, is they, they need to have agency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I know that's in the form everybody's talking about it, but I mean, truly, truly, they need to. And, and they need to be able to make mistakes on their dog management journey, just like everybody else, because we learn from our mistakes and our insights, right? If we just did, if we, if somebody comes in and tells you what to do all the time, you're just a robot, right? You're not even engaged in the change that you're making. So, Yes, communities need their agency too. And how to folks like me? I'm a well-meaning blowhart from Hamilton, white yeah. guy, liberal, but totally undereducated about this issue. Uh, admittedly <laughs> undereducated. Uh, and I want to help. I want to help the dogs. I want to help the people. Um, right, right. That's nice. And, you know, <laughs> it is nice. Uh, and the the problem, though, as you know, and as our listeners likely know, is that I am much more likely to do harm than I am good. 
in a situation that is is fraught with uh, culture and po- politics and history. So how do people like me who want to help but could end up causing problems or try, you know, try to end up fixing an issue as we discussed? How do I and others like me end up helping IFA and the communities on their journey to uh, fulfillment for themselves and for the local uh, non-human animals? Wow. Wow. That's huge. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> God, I don't know. You know, I sent you this question ahead of time. Yeah, that's a big one, though. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm going to tell you my bugaboo. Okay. My bugaboo, and and I'm actually uh, co-presenting at this CFHS conference on this topic. And I have finally said, listen, let's do a talk. We're going to do an hour and a half talk on best practices. Because my bugaboo is I totally understand that people want to help. Mm-hmm. I totally understand that people want to help dogs. And really – if you just care about dogs, this probably isn't the work for you because you need to care about the people too. And I would talk to groups who have been doing this work. That is my one bugaboo. You know, there's so much wisdom to be shared. And this doesn't just go for this. This goes for anything, right? Of course. Talk to a teacher who's been teaching for 20 years. The insights that they have, that, they're, that they can share that's my bugaboo is talk to people who've been doing this work. And it's easy, right? Pick up the phone, send an email because we don't need to repeat the mistakes again, right? Mm -hmm. We can start from where, from that wisdom that we've learned from, you know, collective 30 years or 35 years to share that wisdom. And it is, and we've touched on it. It is those simple things. It's those principles like be humble and listen and dig and be consistent and stay there. I mean, if you think you're going to pop into a community and you're going to solve things, number one, you're not. And number two, you're going to leave in five years. Don't get involved. It's not fair. How many white people do that already? Mm. So that, that's my thing is talk to groups who have been doing this for the long time. That's how they can help. To learn more about this program, visit ifa.org or follow the links on this week's show notes. Thanks everyone for listening. And if you'd like to support the show and get exclusive access to bonus content, check out the Defender Radio Patreon at patreon.com slash Defender Radio. Remember, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio or on Instagram at Howie Michael. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.